Welcome to the final episode in this podcast mini-series on the Beethoven String Quartets brought to you by the Mokum Symphony. I'm your host, Emlyn Stamm, and I'll be taking you through Beethoven String Quartets in this series, focusing on what's special about each and every one of them. As always, I'm joined today by violinist, conductor, and composer Johan Berkheimer. Welcome, Johan. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about the final program on the Beethoven Cycle Concert series that we've been presenting with the Mokum String Quartet. And this program includes the string quartets opus 18 number 5, opus 59 number 2, and the big opus 130 quartet made even bigger by our inclusion in the performance of the Grosse Fuge, the Great Fugue, as the last movement. Let's use this last episode to briefly reflect on what makes Beethoven different or special or, or other than other composers in the canon of Western music. You talked a little bit about Beethoven in previous episodes compared to Haydn and Mozart. Maybe, Johan, you can tell me a little bit about how these three composers of the first Viennese school compare to one another. Well, I would like to pull it a bit bigger in terms of uh, championships, Olympic championships so we compare, for composing. We compare the composers as if they're Olympic athletes or they're doing some kind of a figure skating competition. Yes, whatever. from all the, all the famous composers from, from many ages. Right. And I think that uh, Joseph Haydn would be the Olympic champion. He would get the golden medal. And why? If you look at all the aspects of composing, he scores the highest points on every aspect of, of composing, like form, inventiveness, expression. He creates beautiful melodies. Uh, he's always surprising. His instrumentation is wonderful. He's original. Immediate second would be Mozart. Why isn't Mozart not the golden winner? Because he is not as inventive, I think, as Haydn. Haydn invented the piano trio and the, the string quartet as we know it. And I guess in some senses the symphony as well, because if you look at the form of a symphony, it was really conceived of as a, a symphonia in previous yes. eras, as a kind of a light work that filled up time or space in a concert where you didn't have singers or more important instrumental virtuosos performing. And Haydn conceived of the symphony as a coherent whole where you could imagine listening to the four movements one after the other and then being related to one another and the movements forming a kind of structure. Yes, definitely. So where is Beethoven in this story? Because we can say that Beethoven is the greatest composer or maybe the greatest artist of the whole humanity of all ages. Beethoven's musical material was rather primitive. I mean, his themes, he didn't do his best to invent the most beautiful melodies like Schubert or, or Haydn or Mozart or, or even Brahms. Or even Bizet, if you think about Yes, somebody. absolutely, Bizet. Yeah. I mean, Bizet's tunes, you, you hear them once and they're stuck in your head. Absolutely. So Beethoven was like a sculptor who, who didn't use the most incredible, beautiful marble from Italy, but he just found nice pieces of wood on, on the beach, you know, and created gorgeous art. So that, that's about melody, about form. Beethoven is sometimes, it seems clumsy. He takes very simple harmonies and he repeats and repeats and repeats. And it's, it's like obsession. And, very strong and, and incredible but if you look at it as, as, as composing technique it's weird so you have the instrumentation it's sometimes I mean he didn't care about how things would work for the instruments or for the voice especially for the voice I conducted the ninth symphony and the singers were really suffering and almost like bad composing for the voice and also for the balance
sometimes you have in the symphonies things that just do not sound because the balance is, is lost. And you never, never, ever see that in Berlioz or, or Haydn or Mozart. Well, in Berlioz, I think you do see it because he deliberately, like in Symphonie Fantastique or whatever, yes. he deliberately creates these overpowering, chaotic orchestral textures. Yeah, but, but things that are important are always heard. Yeah. Sometimes I had to, in the Eighth Symphony of Beethoven, you have this um, horn moment in the minuet. And there is a cello, and absolutely strange accompaniment that almost does not work. Yeah, and and this you find often in Beethoven's work. So he is in his orchestration. He is it seems sometimes clumsy. So he doesn't get a medal for that. Well, let's think even about the piano, which was his own instrument, right? We know that he was constantly pushing the boundaries. He was breaking strings of his instruments. He was writing all these things in the low register of the piano, which are unclear and even more unclear if you go back to the instruments of his day, which often would sound even more muddy and and unable to cope with the with the heaviness and the density with which he packs chords in the low register. Yes. part of his deal, it's part of his art, it's part of his soul, and it is almost a symbol of, of humanity, suffering and struggling. Yeah, and what about the opening of the violin concerto, for example? Like, is there a more difficult opening for a violin soloist that you can think of than playing these, these bloody octaves? Yes, it's horror. And then the scales, we're going to talk about the scales because he uses scales, sometimes they are completely understandable. In the 59 slow movement, there are scales that are pure beauty, but sometimes the scales are ununderstandable, like in the Beethoven Concerto. I still, I mean, I'm practicing it now, and I still wonder what to do with it. So we could say Beethoven is not the Olympic champion of actually any aspect of composing. But what his music does embody is the sense of struggle, and that makes it all the more human. Bertrand said that, that there's no single note that cannot be followed by another one that he writes. Kind of inevitability of each note following. Yes, and the spiritual and the human power in every little corner and in the biggest forms are breathtaking. So zooming out, so we talk about Beethoven representing this as a composer. What about other artists? Are there other artists that you could think of that, that have a similar mode of expression or a similar centrality to struggle, whether writers or sculptors or painters? or? Yeah, I think Rembrandt. Rembrandt. My father was a sculptor and a wonderful drawer. He could draw incredibly. And he always showed me small details. For instance, if you remember the, the painting, if you think of the painting of that that person. The anatomy lesson, I think, is the English. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a really wonderful example of, of the fact that the arm of the dead person is too short. Yeah. And my father always told me that the arms of Rembrandt, are the arms that he was painting, were often too short. But I'm sure the humanity is also very central in Rembrandt's painting, right? Oh, yes. Because it's not about, if you look at other artists of his time, like Vermeer, he's a kind of Mozart, right? Because yes. in 17th century Dutch painting because there's a kind of unbelievable kind of melodic perfection yes. about the way he paints light and shadow and Absolutely. everything is in the right place and whatever like Mozart's melodies I guess and yeah. then with Rembrandt you have this 
rough hewn edges and it's really often about the the emotion of uh, what is it Belshazzar where he sees the writing on the wall you yeah. know and and the expression on the faces and it's about capturing that moment that humanness of what the characters in these paintings or the people that he's that he's portraying in portraits or even in his self-portraits what is the character of that person looking at you what are they feeling what are they going through and i guess that humanity i think that struggle to portray humanity is very similar to beethoven yes and the late rembrandt you see parts of painting like like a background if you take a few centimeters of the background and you make a painting out of that it's complete modern art yeah. and the most incredible modern art and you have that in Beethoven too if you take some examples of a few bars it's it's timeless it's like beyond Steve Reich so I think that's an interesting resonance and a comparison actually and I suppose that aspect of struggle to overcome to, to triumph I guess that really will resonate with a lot of people in our time So let's move on and talk about the final program for this cycle. So Opus 18, number five in A major. This is, I guess, in a way, Beethoven's Mozart quartet, a musicologist who called it uh, Jeremy Yudkin in an article. He writes about how this piece is in form, but not in style, based on Mozart's A major quartet, K464, mm -hmm. which is also an A major, that the rhetoric of having these short statements, like at the beginning of the piece, Yes and a silence, and then a short statement, and then a longer statement. This is the same sort of form and structure that Mozart is using, just in a very different way. Yes, it's a very happy piece, and an A major is such a sunny key, and um, there's hardly a, a moment in the first movement where he goes dramatic. I mean, like the second theme is minor, but not sad. You know, sometimes you have minor very happy minor and very sad major moments. He changes mood within the key of A and it's very alive and, and wonderful to play. I think Mozart also, I mean, A major was really a key that Mozart used a lot in many of his works, like the clarinet quintet, for yes. example. Two piano concertos in A major, yes. the fifth violin concerto. And he's also often switching between major and minor Mozart yes. when he uses this key. Yeah. And Schubert as well, actually. As far as I can think at the moment, I don't know that many other works in Beethoven in A major. So the sixth violin sonata is also in A major. None of his major pieces are in this key. Well, the last movement of the quarter sonata. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's it's sunny. It's yeah, sunny. And yeah. and you know, my favorite Beatles song is "Here Comes the Sun." It's in A major. Here comes the sun. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Here comes the sun. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, always when songs about the sunshine is... Is in A major. Okay, so the second movement of this quartet is the minuet, rather sort of Haydn-esque minuet, no? Yeah, that's true. It's quite a simple, a simple one, actually. It's incredible, wonderful how he is connected to Mozart and Haydn. Really strong connection in every movement there are you can point out who is the, the biggest influence, Mozart or Haydn. And in the minuet, it is Haydn. He's never imitating or he never loses his own character. Yeah. And then I suppose the third movement is quite special because it's something that we don't see a lot in the string quartets in that it's a variation form. You have a theme with variations. Probably the only other example is maybe the, the last movement of Opus 74. But there aren't really other movements in this kind of structure, I think, in the rest of the, of the quartets. No. And there is a, in the string trio, Opus 8, the Serenade. Yeah. The last movement is also a variation movement, actually with a quite similar theme to the one that he uses here. Yes, it's... Um... It's a happy, almost simple key of D major, and it's also used by Schubert in the Die Forelle. Yeah. Same, the theme of the trout yes. yeah. is in D major, and he has variations. These variations are pretty wild in places, these Beethoven ones. You have this moment which which sounds almost like it's a, a circus theme where you get the... Like real sort of beer hall stuff. There's something very folkloric about the atmosphere in some of these variations. Yeah. Well, he combines the sweetness and the almost Lentler atmosphere. And this first variation is already quite wild. And suddenly he traces off into B-flat major somewhere, right? Um, with the cello just repeating this this accompanying pattern over and over again. And then the theme comes in in B-flat major. It's a real ah, yeah, modernist yeah. moment all of a sudden. Yeah. gives an incredible example of his unlimited fantasy here, using classical ways. And then the final movement is this really virtuoso thing where everybody's imitating each other. It's actually it's quite tricky to play, right? Because you have to really 
be on the ball and, and every musician follows the other. Da -da -da -dum, da -da -da -dum. Three shorts and a long, actually, which is again the fifth symphony, but in a totally different style, a totally different meaning here. There is also a connection to the last movement of the second quartet. I think he writes with an Italian accent. Mm -hmm. It's really like a Napolitan yeah. connection to the third quartet, because the last movement of the third quartet is also... Italian feeling with this uh, movement. This kind of Italian virtuosity that we think of with, you know, Paganini and yeah. Tartini and, and these these kind of violin and or Boccherini, these string yes, virtuosos from absolutely. Italy. Yeah. And also this idea of writing a kind of a, almost a show movement for quartet returns throughout the Opus 18 cycle, actually. Yeah. And it's hard to play. I mean, if you really want to have a, a good spiccato, short notes, jumping notes, immediately followed by long nice notes you have all kind of bowing techniques needs practice practice and practice i mean bow control i guess is really an issue because yeah. you're switching so quickly from one action to another in his time they were changing bows huh? the bows were yeah they were evolving from the from swan to the tourt to the tourt yeah the tourt bow and of course there's a lot of discussion about you know, when, who had which bows in Vienna or not, but suffice it to say that this music was certainly beyond bows because Beethoven didn't really give a crap about anybody's bow. No, not at all. <laughs> he said, here's the music, play it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's actually an anecdote of the cellist um, in Schupanzig's quartet. Somebody had asked him, don't you find it difficult? It's Beethoven writing for cello, which is of the high register and so uncomfortable. And he says, well... You know, Beethoven writes it, and then I just struggle to play it as best I can. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which I guess is how we still feel. Yes, despite, definitely. definitely. So then the next quartet in this program is the Opus 59, number two, the Razumovsky in E minor, from the set of three quartets dedicated to Count Razumovsky, the Russian ambassador in Vienna. So this quartet is more unusual tonality for Beethoven, E minor. This is quite rare. Very rare, huh? Yeah. I mean, I can, even in general, quite a rare tonality for composers like Mozart. Haydn also didn't use E minor very much. There's a famous violin sonata by Mozart in E minor, written, uh, I think, also shortly after Mozart's mother passed away. works in this key in general I think also because it's so disbalanced when you talk about a string quartet just intonation wise because you try and tune the strings in a slightly tempered way as you tune in fifths I mean not to get too technical about it but as you tune down towards the C string on the cello it becomes lower and as you tune up towards the E string on the violin the intonation becomes higher naturally yeah. Yeah. so this gap between having an open E string and an open C string yes. in the cello becomes very wide and it becomes a very kind of unseemly key in which to play with a reasonable, coherent tuning. A wonderful work that pops up immediately, thinking of E minor, is the Violin Concerto of Mendelssohn. But it's totally different from, from this quartet. This second quartet of the 59 is a dark center, triptych. Yeah. You have two monumental chords in the beginning and a silence, and then a restless motive starts. Eroica Symphony, also two monumental chords. Oh, yes, true. But E flat major, but now we're in E minor. Yeah.
and then the restlessness combined with scales, a lot of scales again. Sometimes I don't know really what to do with them. They connect certain passages. And should it be Fertivos? Should, should it be Cantabile? There seems to be indeed a sense of, at least I get a sense of disquiet from this music, an unease, a sort of, a sort of discomfort that shines through the first movement here. Yes. It's also written in an uncomfortable way, but it also seems to be a character of sort of struggling. There's this restlessness and this melancholy that combines. again you know like on the run for horrible things yeah and it's interesting because 59.1 and 59.3 are sort of these much more i mean 59.1 seems to be this more life-affirming and, yes. and 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 grand and and positive piece of music yeah. and 59.3 has all of these all of these witty and virtuoso elements and this kind of feeling of, of wholeness whereas this piece totally doesn't no Razumovsky wanted a Russian sphere. Yeah. And I think that, that Beethoven wrote with a Russian accent this time. A Russian atmosphere. This Russian romanticism of Tolstoy or whatever. Yes. And there's a strange similarity with Opus 95, because you have E minor. And then he goes half tone higher. Suddenly, to F yeah. major, ninety-five, you have. He does that. Must have been a huge surprise for musical connoisseurs in the, those times. Yeah. To suddenly change key with no preparation. No preparation at all. Just he throws, he does things that are maybe they are forbidden. You know, and, and if you look at the musical laws of harmony, he crosses lines and that makes him wonderful. Pushes the boundaries. Also. But he doesn't get a medal for it. So the second movement of this piece. Yes. We are now in E major. I think well, it was Tyre, who was a pupil of Beethoven. He said that Beethoven had told him that this music was about the stars in the night sky and the music of the spheres or something like that. That might be his interpretation after Beethoven died. But I can well imagine. I mean, it's similar in a way to the, the Heiliger Dankesang, the slow movement mm -hmm. of Opus 132, in that it's this long, slow-moving chords, almost like a chorale. Intense melodic beauty, I think, almost more melodic beauty than in many of the other quartets. Perhaps it's one of the most beautiful movements in terms of just the, the shape of the melody. and peacefulness. It's almost a Mozartian stream of lovely loveliness compared with a little pain. For a composer who's constantly breaking the sense of flow in his music, for example in the first movement of this quartet, this is a really flowing continuous melody and continuous piece of musical structure. Yes, that's what you see with Mozart, the continuous, the, the long lines, the the scales that he uses, 
they do not trouble me in, in terms of how, how to perform them because it's pure melody. It's the scale as a melody. And here you have also this, I guess, a reference to kind of a distant hunting horn or a post horn, as if you're wandering in the forest and you hear this, you know, horns in the distance in this kind of pastoral setting or however it is. You are in a romantic mood. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that, that's the mood that this music puts you in. That's true. That's where the composers and the artists of the 19th century take Beethoven and explode his work right into new forms of personal human expression where really the emotion and the atmosphere comes to dominate. You know, I'm always looking so much forward to, to play this movement. Yeah. It's, it's just absolutely wonderful to play this and to be in the middle of this. You're just taken away by, by it. And then we get to the third movement of this piece, which is... The Russian theme. Yeah. Glory to the sun, long live the Tsar. This theme is, of course, used in Mussorgsky's opera Boris Godunov. Yes. And that's one of the climactic scenes with the with the Tsar Boris in the opera, where he comes on stage and everyone is singing, you know, his praises. I think it's near the beginning, actually, of the opera, where he really enters, where we're introduced. Like this is the great Tsar, of course. fact that Beethoven here uses this theme in a simple minuet, which is a patriotic song, but here it's, you know, given a Haydn-esque sort of treatment, almost trivializing the, the patriotism. I don't know to what extent Beethoven understood the words or knew the history of the song or its context, but he well, turns it into something. Yeah, um, I mean, Beethoven didn't care much about high society figures, as that famous anecdote when he walks with Goethe in a park and he meets the emperor. Yeah. He doesn't take a ball. Oh, he doesn't bow to the no. emperor, yeah. And uh, Goethe did, of course, being a politician. And he was angry with Beethoven, I think. That speaks to, of course, Beethoven's revolutionary character as fighting for freedom and overthrowing the, the dominant classes. And also how he, he makes variations on the theme. Really funny. You have viola, the theme, tum, 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 the second violin, makes jokes. And it's interesting because then you have Anton Orensky in his quartet for violin, viola and two cellos. Oh, yeah. Who takes this theme and makes it into the last movement of the quartet. I suppose there it's really in a much more glorified patriotic setting because it's really, you know, fortissimo yeah, and yeah. like, you know, given the full patriotic treatment. But he still keeps a little bit of that Beethoven variation because he has those very quick notes in the violin and the viola accompanying those two cellos who were playing this theme at some point, which is a funny transformation of this theme back to the original patriotic setting, but then with some ideas from Beethoven still connected to it. Yeah. Which shows you how far this theme has traveled from Russia to Beethoven to <laughs> Mussorgsky to Arensky. Yeah. ends into nothing because at the end of that movement it disappears into a very soft pianissimo and the cello playing a very low
And then the main kind of scherzo part, because this is the sort of trio to the scherzo, yeah. it's a very dance-like rhythmic yes. thing, because you have this papa, papa in the accompaniment. It reminds me of Argentinian tango. Yes. Piazzola or something. Yeah, it's know? very dancant. It's kind of cafe house music yeah. or whatever. And then you have it interrupted with this. Yeah. It's actually got quite a bit of spice or, or humor or something yeah. thrown in. And then the last movement. Yeah. We see a little bit of the sun. Yeah, and also about the Beethoven obsession. He doesn't let loose. times I counted today that theme comes back in the movement and it so it starts out nice in C major happy and then it suddenly is transformed into E minor but maybe the E minor is also a bit of a happy minor and it's this yep. riding on horseback or a wild riding on horseback so yes. kind of I don't know if he's trying to portray the Cossacks riding through the steppe or I don't know what, what I'm, I'm sure he does I'm sure there's there's horse riding in the between the birch trees yes it is uh, also the rhythm of the Grosse Fuga. There's no horse riding, but cosmos creation. <laughs> we'll dig into that in a minute. <laughs> There's a sort of majesty to it, but also a certain passion and virtuos yes, virtuosity. And th there are so many extremes. And the extremes he put here together was quite new. So let's turn to the final quartet in the cycle, the great Opus 130 quartet in B-flat, including the Grosse Fuga as a finale. We've chosen to play the Grosse Fuga as the finale instead of the other finale. So the story is that Beethoven wrote the piece, he sent the music to the publishers, who told him, well, this is way too long, we can't sell this, this last movement is out of control, just break it up into pieces, write another last movement and publish it again. So he went on, he wrote a different last movement and published the, the fugue separately from the quartet. So I guess the question is, why would we choose to do the fugue with the quartet instead of the alternative finale? In most historical Beethoven cycles, the fugue wasn't even played because it was considered, a, even Joachim's cycle, he didn't play the fugue. They considered it a, a sort of impossible piece or it wasn't, it was too controversial to listen to or it was, you know, somehow didn't merit place in the cycle. They thought he was gone mad. Crazy, yeah, exactly. Whereas, I think looked at from today, this fugue is maybe the crowning achievement of the cycle in that it opens so much to modernism, postmodernism, to the future. And also it feels structurally in the weight of the first movement, in the weight of what you travel through in that quartet, which we'll discuss in detail in a moment through the Cavatina and yeah. through its famous Beklimt section that matches the atmosphere, the narrative of the Grosse Fuga. So it feels like a coherent whole. It, is, it does. I mean, in a sense, the, the companion piece to Opus 130 is the famous Hammerklavier Sonata, yeah. which is also in B-flat yes. and also has a fugue, crazy fugue finale yeah. and also has a kind of Beklimt section in the slow movement. I think that's the reason we chose to play the piece this way. Maybe talking first about the opening movement, 
and the Grosse Fuga and how they connect. Because this piece, the Grosse Fuga's theme is all about the minor second interval, which is the closest interval without doing, you know, quarter tones or microtones until you get a unison. So these the notes next to each other. And this opening slow theme is also minor seconds. Right, and these minor seconds also make up the Grosse Fuga, which is another connection. Right. But there's a warmth, right, to this opening theme. And then suddenly you get this trumpet call. The opening is warm, it's relaxed, but unclear. It's like searching. So where does it go? What does it mean? It's full of expectation. And then there is this allegro outburst, fast notes, energetic. And indeed, the trumpet theme in the second violin, very strong motive with a military sense. Yeah. And, you know, military doesn't mean immediately war-like. Mm -hmm. It could also be a heavenly struggle or something heroic. And the key for me personally, the B-flat major, is the key of, of a sharp pencil drawing. Everything is so clear, like crystal, in this movement. I think also the first movement of the Hammerklavier, how heroic that is, those, those big chords in the opening that crash in. get to a second theme yes and everywhere this motive is becomes obsessive throughout the movement you get this patadadam I have also thought of, I mean, if I should create a little childish story with this music, I would yeah. say that energetic outburst in the beginning is, you know, the excitement of a young soldier going to war. You know, we're going to win and we're going to be heroes and we are happy to to fight. So, diddle, 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 dum, bum, dum, bum, bing, means let's go, let's do it. Yeah. And then, is the mother. Who says goodbye? Please come back. I mean, if Beethoven has such a fantasy, I permit myself to yeah, try to do the same. I mean, otherwise you cannot perform this music. You must create yeah. stories and meanings, and you have to form the characters and almost exaggerate it to perform it. And that's why we of Mokum, of the Mokum Quartet have such a great pleasure and fun to to do this project because we are approaching this these works on a very romantic way. This particular piece is so full of contrasting characters. I mean, it has to be, I feel as a musician, one's job is to, to really bring this to life and to really give character yes. in the articulation, in the sound, in the timing, in the way you approach the rhythm, Absolutely. to all of these things that they're so strongly felt and strongly heard as much as can be done. And what about that incredible moment? suddenly in the world again of this Philip Glass type of minimal music. Absolutely. Okay, and then we get to the presto in the second movement. Mm -hmm. 
It's gossiping. It's ladies gossiping. And then you have this this barn dance. It goes crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost again unplayable. You have these things, right? High this, on the E string. This is one of the unplayable moments of this whole project. Yeah. But the whispering of, of the group of people, it's like really did you hear? Did you hear? And then suddenly we get this variation movement. And suddenly we're back in Haydn or something for this variation. But it's not a Haydn that's a familiar Haydn. It's a Haydn that goes exploring all kinds of unusual harmonic quarters, right? It's almost like in these middle movements, we have all these dance forms from the 18th century, right? All these different, we have this barn dance in the second movement, and now we have sort of a stately court dance in this variation movement. And then in the movement afterwards, the Alla Tedesca, we have again another sort of weird minuet-like dance. It's kind of trivial dance forms that would have been the music of the court or the music of the people are somehow worked together in this all-encompassing musical structure of that life of dance music. It's a very unusual sort of dance suite in a way, you know, this whole quartet. What strikes me always is this almost farmerish moment in this andante. Yeah. Where? And then suddenly, it's very Haydn, actually. That was Haydn's sense of humor, right? To kind of suddenly shift from one thing to another. Yes, he is so virtuous in almost fooling around with scales and accents and ideas that he got. Is this piece and this movement also sort of a, could we see it as a sort of farewell to all of this 18th century culture and dance and musical form and style in a way. It's almost like we are passing all of these themes and things and then the Grosse Fuga is just going to blow it all the smithereens in the last <laughs> yes. moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can really see it like that. Like a final farewell to kind of pre-French Revolution culture and life. Yes, because it has all the elements of the elegance of the wake period. Yep, beep, 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 beep. Yeah. But how he uses it almost angry. Yep, bum, 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 Wanting to break out of something. That's true what you say. So if we're a Marxist musicologist, then this piece is kind of a class struggle of the of the proletariat against the... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure somebody has written a paper that argues that somewhere. Um, but anyway, it's still music. And then we get this alla tedesca, so yes. a German dance. What's so strange to me is if you think of a German dance, you think of something heavy and like beer and sausages. But this is so elegant. And this yeah. is so sweet and highly civilized. There's always sort of a sweetness, maybe also because of the happy key of G major. Maybe the German culture on his best, like the culture of Goethe and the great writers and the poets and the romantic painters in those days and beautiful landscape and architecture of little villages. And then we go to the Cavatini. Yeah. Beethoven purportedly thought this was one of the best things that he'd ever written. The most famous and notable section is the one that he called the Klemt, yeah. so choked. This kind of intimate, warm atmosphere of the melodic material, 
and then all of a sudden you have this departure to another planet where you have the second violin viola and cello playing these repeated notes and then the first violin with what's marked as choked sort of soaring off into very unexpected harmonies in these little fragments or almost outcries of expression. It's not a recitative, it can't be called that, it's something else. It's an outburst of a kind of feeling, right? thought about that and could imagine that it's about loneliness, complete loneliness and isolation. As if the world closes in on you. Yes. And you just... And there's no one to help you. You're in the darkness and this is an outcry. Yeah. And there's no hope almost. And there is complete like silence and this is the piece that nasa chose to send with the budapest quartet on the voyager 2 probe which is now i think leaving our solar system yes if there are any intelligent life forms out there with the technological capabilities they may be listening to the cavatina in the future i hope i hope i mean it's an incredible outburst but then it does resolve itself in a way into the stillness is is it resolved or is it just sort of forgotten or cast aside the end of the beklemt section because we just return again as if almost as if nothing happened with different moods and fears and the music is so lovely and so painful at the same time. Here's an example of how a major key of E flat major sounds so sad in a way or sad is not the right word but so melancholical. Yeah it's also a sensation to play this. If you are able to to create a nice sound there's nothing more beautiful than playing this piece. So the cavatina and then we're into the grosso fuga. Suddenly, introduction to the Grosse Fuga. It's like an explosion, like something shattering, right? We have this G, yeah. everybody's playing the same notes together. Of, which is the theme of, of the fugue. And as an introduction, it's very, I guess, unconventional. I mean, we are in a different type of music altogether all of a sudden. And just compare this introduction. So we had the introduction to the first movement of this piece. You have also the introduction to Quartet Opus 132, using the same motives of the minor second. And then you have the fugue theme in the opening adagio of the C-sharp minor quartet, yeah. Opus 131. And how those things compare to the Rosa Fuga theme, because he's using this very dissonant intervals in all cases, right, of the minor second, but in, in these other cases of introductions, this material is all based around some sort of a tonal center or some sort of a musical shape that we can understand. Whereas here, it's just left on its own. There's no harmony, there's no resolution, there's no, it's just the motives as it is. And he's kind of saying, okay, Boom, here it is. We explode all previous music. Here is the new music. Here is the future, you know. 
Yeah. It's the most radical statement you could imagine. The most radical of composers at the early 20th century didn't do something this radical, not even Schoenberg or with atonality or Stravinsky with bitonality or, you know, I think only like John Cage's four minutes of silence is as radical as this in a way, you know, yeah. you're just exploding any expectation of music if you compare this to all of what's come before in his writing. as partitional and then the accents brutality um, almost I really have the idea that this is about like the big bang yeah it's a big bang and, and if we accept that if we think about the multiverse as they do in theoretical physics yeah. or multiple universes or like a bubble wrap universe where you have different universes which are somehow skin is touching of each universe to one another it's yeah. like from out of the skin of the other universe, which is all of these previous German dances and 18th century forms and harmony and whatever, he explodes in a big bang, a new universe. In the multiverse, we have created a new universe here. the big noise there's a big silence and then the violin starts the viola predicts something for later. The idea is there already, but not rude still. And then the whole thing starts. And when the whole thing starts, it's like almost every single note creates something strong. The idea of fugue is, of course, comes from 17th century or 16th century forms even. The idea that you have multiple voices in a piece of music and a theme is introduced and that theme is taken over by each voice that enters. So you get a counterpoint of all of these voices yeah. playing their or singing their line at the same time. So if we take the most famous examples of fugues up to this point, like Bach's Kunstfugue yeah. that he wrote on one theme. ways upside down sideways backwards and upside down how he could use these themes varied and and transformed to write different fugues which was an obsession from of Beethoven but Bach's fugues are a demonstration of something they're a demonstration of knowledge of yes. technique of mastery this Grosse Fuge is not anymore a demonstration of mastery this Grosse Fuge is a human conflict it's a conflict between these incredible harsh dissonant voices that are in the main theme and also the searching character of the way it's introduced in the first violin and the power with which it comes in the fortissimo afterwards with the viola and the accompanying line. And this previous material.
these two elements are in conflict with each other throughout, that we have this feeling of a sense of struggle. So with all this technique and all of this kind of mastery of counterpoint that is inherited from Bach, this is paced now into a form which is about human conflict, survival, renewal and change, I suppose. The aspect of humanity in his music is always there. But for me, this fugue is about more than humanity. It's, it's really like the creation of the universe. The human sense comes, is introduced by this lovely theme in the middle. Which is the same theme. Because we are all built from stardust, right? Yeah, exactly. So the lovely theme is just God's love. He created the universe. The few comes back, but in a more human way. Yeah. And it's also less difficult to play as a quartet. Yeah. The last part is more possible. our way into the B-flat major again. So there's this incredible, I think the ending of this piece has an incredible life-affirming power. And that power is created by the incredible dissonance and the atonality of that opening section, where you have so much conflict and turmoil, which I suppose you could also see as, if you're looking at the creation of the universe, and we could see it as a kind of explosion and all of this material, and yeah. we could imagine the history of Earth with volcanoes exploding That's and the violence of the pre- the pre-atmospheric planet, right? Whereas in the end, we would have, I don't know, forests and trees and birds and oxygen and, and you know. He describes creation in the Ninth Symphony. It's like the beginning of Genesis. The first movement, the beginning of the Ninth yes. Symphony. Yeah. Again, a dotted notes. Titi. It's creative. Yeah. It's creation. You will find a passage where Beethoven does exactly the same in the Grosse Fuga as he does in the last movement of the ninth, where he brings the themes and rejects them. The first composer that uses trills not as an aspect of elegance but of a single emancipated expression so there's this thrill high thrill high on the e string of the violin underneath the struggle goes on The trill is, of course, a suspension, right? Because when you have a trill, you have two notes against each other in close proximity. And as long as the trill continues, those notes are not resolved, right? 
So that's always a continuous tension in the late piano sonatas, like Opus 111. There are famous passages where these trills just go on and on. Yeah. It's that element of creating a, a suspension without a resolution, which I think is the possibility unleashed here. It's the possibility of, of the atonal. There's, of course, a reason why Stravinsky said this piece was contemporary and would always remain contemporary. Yeah. Right? It's incredible how dissonant this work is. And I think you wouldn't have an overall like Stockhausen's without this piece having been written, or Stravinsky's, or Schoenberg's, or the whole legacy of 20th century music rests here in this explosion and potentiality not to mention musics that have not been conceived or, or written yet. Well, I really enjoyed making this five-episode miniseries with you, Johan. It's been a great pleasure. To... Me too. It's not only wonderful to play with you, but you know, to do this together, it's really very nice to do. It's been a great pleasure to talk through all of Beethoven's string quartets here and a lot of other issues that might touch on or relate to them. We hope also that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and that you will... Continue to follow us and look us up with the Milcom Symphony at www.milcomsymphony.nl. And of course, feel free to share this podcast with friends and give us a five-star rating or a one-star rating, depending on how you feel about it. Leave comments, reviews. We're really happy to hear from you. And we hope most of all that you've enjoyed being on this journey with us and learned more and been able to experience more around these wonderful string quartets by Beethoven and really look forward to meeting you, seeing you at our future concerts. All right. Thank you very much, Johan. Thank you. Thank you.